Well, good morning, church. How are we doing? Yeah, all right. I need a little bit more than that today, okay? Um, if you're here for the first time, we're so thankful that you are decided to worship with us today. We, uh, we hope and pray that this will be a place where you can find renewal and revival week after week. Um, we hope to feed you the Word of God. We love the Bible. Um, because of that, today we're in week three of Jonah. Uh, and just as a heads up, in a couple weeks, two weeks actually, we'll be diving into the book of Judges. It's going to take us all the way to Thanksgiving. Uh, so if you've ever read through the book of Judges, you probably noticed there are several intriguing stories, uh, stories like Ehud and Deborah and Gideon and Samson, uh, pretty captivating at times, while at the same time you might be thinking Judges, like that's a pretty interesting pick. How, like have you read Judges? And yes, there's a couple cool stories, several good stories in there, but it's a bit bleak at times, and yes I know, uh, but with that, in the midst of all of the wickedness of Judges, We'll see what happens when God is just pushed to the side. Like, I think it's fair to say that the book of Judges is the exact opposite of a revival. You know, last fall we we went through the book of Joshua where it really highlighted the power of God amongst the people of God uh, with an obedient people. Well, this fall, the very next book after the book of, of Joshua in the Bible is the book of Judges where we see the exact opposite. We see the futility uh, of people when God is ignored. The book of Judges, it basically takes everything that happens in the book of Joshua, Joshua and it just totally unravels. And yes, we'll see some pretty unremarkable people, while at the exact same time, we will see a picture of God's remarkable grace. We'll see God's steadfast love and patience among a bunch of rebellious people. And throughout the entire book, we'll see the bad news of the gospel portrayed in Judges, but in contrast, see the good news that Jesus brings us today. And so if Judges is the bad news, Jesus is the good news. Week after week, we're going to see a warning from Judges, but then Jesus, see how Jesus brings hope and renewal, uh, seeing how God brings revival. And in many ways, our series in Judges will be of an encore to the book of Jonah, uh, because as we've seen in Jonah, yes, God has a plan and a purpose, but God's plan to fulfill his purpose is to use his people who have submitted their life to the Lord. And so if the book of Judges will show us what hinders revival and a spiritual awakening, then the book of Jonah, as we'll see today, shows us God's pursuit of his people to bring about revival and a spiritual awakening. The book of Jonah, it's all about God's relentless grace to revive his people. And so today, with that said, today is all, it's all about the overwhelming grace of God put on display in the mission of God, which leads us pretty uh, quickly to our main idea. The grace of God is essential to the mission of God and for the mission of God. Today is all about God's grace. It's all about God's mission. It's all about grace for Jonah and Nineveh and also us here today. We're all in desperate need of God's grace. And throughout chapter three, We'll see God's grace portrayed in several different ways. God's grace, it's not one-dimensional, but multi-dimensional. It comes in all different forms and fashions. But before we get too far into the grace of God and the mission of God, I want to just get us up to speed uh, with what's happened so far in the book of Jonah. You know, the first two chapters of Jonah, we saw God call out to Jonah, who was a prophet. He was a religious leader of the day. And God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, which was a large and rebellious city. Let's just say they weren't the friendliest bunch. No, they were very cruel. Uh, they were very well known for, being, for how cruel they were and how mean they were. And so what did Jonah do? He said, nope, I am not going there. And so he got on a boat and he went in the exact opposite direction. 
And in that, we saw uh, a glimpse into the heart of man. We saw Jonah's rebellion. We saw Jonah's disobedience. And we saw that downward cycle of sin. And throughout the story of Jonah, we've seen so far pretty clearly uh, that we also can be a lot like Jonah. Seeing that there will always be a boat that's just ready to take us away from God's plan and purpose. And that our sin and rebellion, it can lead us into that downward spiral further and further away from God's plan and purpose. But in all of that, we've also seen God's kindness in our rebellion. We saw God's kindness to bring a storm to Jonah in order to bring Jonah back to himself and to bring him into greater dependence on God. And then last week in chapter two, we saw Jonah's prayer and we saw Jonah repent and turn back towards God. And seeing one of the main ideas in the entire book, seeing just the damaging effects that idols can have in our life and how they can draw us away from God's mission. And at the end of last week, we looked at the characteristics of a renewed life, and we saw a picture of a life that is marked by ongoing repentance, ultimately seeing that a life that is yielded to God can and will be used by God. Which brings us up to chapter 3 today. So I want to go ahead and read the entire chapter, all 10 verses, and so follow along with me in Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and it published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent uh, and turn from his fierce anger so that he may not perish. When God saw what they, had, uh, w- what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So just to summarize uh, this, Jonah finally, he goes to Nineveh. He preaches them, and then a revival breaks out in the city. The whole city, they repent, and they turn back towards God, and they cry out to God. It's just an incredible work of God's grace. But before we walk back through this and really kind of mine out all of God's grace in four different ways throughout this chapter, I want to first just ask you a question, okay? If you're a Christian here today, if if you would say that Jesus is Lord of your life, I just wanted to ask, have you ever thought... Like, have you ever considered God's kindness in getting the gospel to you? Like the leaps and bounds God did to get you the message of salvation, the message that tells us that being a Christian has nothing to do with what we do or how good we are, that being a Christian, it is totally about what Jesus did at the cross to offer us forgiveness and a way back to God. Like, I think it's easy for us to forget what God did for us and in us to give us an opportunity to hear the gospel and to respond in faith. Like we can easily just miss God's relentless pursuit of us. And so I want to take about three or four minutes, and I just want to tell you a story about a friend of mine named Charlie. 
Okay, so Charlie, he grew up in a family that went to church. It was, it was more of like a Southern tradition than any sort of meaningful relationship of why they went. It was, but they went to church. That's just kind of what they did. But yet Charlie, although he went to church, he never heard the gospel. And then when he got to college, he came to a crossroads in his life. And he was in a crowd that wasn't by any means walking with the Lord. He got in some trouble and God began working in his heart. And he just knew that he needed something different. And his mom told him to go check out one of these Christian organizations on campus. And his girlfriend at the time, uh, she was doing the same thing. And so he walked into one of these meetings on campus and he immediately felt welcomed. Like he didn't feel ashamed and he heard the gospel. And then he started to hang out with these people. And then he, kind of funny enough, he joined a singing group, which me looking back on it now, he wasn't the greatest singer. Um, so it's kind of funny. But yet, that's where he started to work. That's where he started walking with the Lord. And he started to grow in his faith. And he started sharing his faith with people. And God was working on his heart. Like God totally captivated him. And then he started praying for more opportunities to share his faith with people who he knew needed Jesus. And he found, about an outreach, he found out about an outreach organization to high school kids through an ad in the paper. And he went to find out more about this organization. And then God broke his heart for this ministry to high school students called Young Life. And so just think about this for a second. Like what in the world does God have to do in a person's heart who is far from God in college, living a life that by no means honors the Lord? Like what does God have to do to captivate that guy's heart to convince him to go hang out with a bunch of high school kids with the hopes of leading them to Jesus? Like what does God have to do to get a guy to go from, a fr- from the frat house on a Friday night to instead rather go hang out with a bunch of freshmen and sophomore guys in high school at a high school football game in order to show them about the love of Jesus. Like, I don't know about you, but this seems like a big jump. And you know, I'm not saying this is true for every high school kid, but let's just say that Acts is targeted towards high school boys uh, that think that showering is optional. And those Friday night football games, uh, they don't come with the most pleasant aroma at times. But, But I say all of this Because it's clear that God was working in Charlie's heart. God gave Charlie a sense of compassion for lost people, and specifically high school kids. And then he spent the next 18 years of his life doing ministry and running after the hearts of high school kids. And you know what? I was one of those kids. I was one of those high school boys that needed Jesus. And then over a two-year period, Charlie, week after week, showed me Jesus to the point when I was a junior in high school, I handed my life over to the Lord. And just think about this. Like, what if, what if his mom and girlfriend just never said anything to, to Charlie about these Christian organizations when he was searching for something to kind of latch onto? You know, what if, what if Charlie was like, you know, singing's not really my thing. I think I'm just not going to do this. Uh, and, and he may never have known what it looked like to follow Christ. What if the only ad that made it to that paper, the only ad that Young Life had ever put in that paper over a 30-year period, what if it was never put in the paper? Like, what if Charlie just said, you know what, I really don't want to spend my college days hanging out with the high school kids. I don't think Young Life is for me. And you know, if Charlie, if he did not come to my high school and for whatever reason pursue me week after week as just as lost as could be and pick me up week after week to put me in a place week after week to hear the gospel so God could do a work in my heart, who knows where I would be today? Like, I'm not convinced I would be here right now. Like, I'm not convinced of that at all. But guess what? I am. And why? 
Because God did a work in Charlie's life that then led God to use Charlie to be a part of God doing a massive work in my life to get the gospel to me. And y'all, that's just my life. Think about my wife. Think about what God had to do in my wife's life, for her in, her, in, in my wife's parents' life to get the message of Christ to Kelly. I mean, I, I can say pretty confidently that if Kelly wasn't my wife and if Kelly's parents didn't get the gospel to her, I'm fairly certain our church would not exist. But yet, in God's providence, here we are. And why? Well, because of God's relentless pursuit, because of the sovereign hand of God, uh, he had a plan that he wanted to bring about. I and mean, we could go on and on about this, but just think, just one more. What does God have to do in the hearts and lives of missionaries all over the world to get the gospel to those who have never heard the name of Jesus? Like God has to do a work in their hearts to leave the comforts of home and to sell their houses and leave their jobs and their families and to go to a completely foreign and uncomfortable place so that God can get the message of Christ to those who have never heard the name of Jesus. You see, we can't underestimate the hand of God at work in our life. And if you know Christ today, I hope that you'll just kind of think about that and I hope that you'd see an overwhelming amount of God's grace in the hand of your life. There's no question. God relentlessly pursues his people. He relentlessly pursued me and he's relentlessly pursuing you. And this is what we see in the book of Jonah. God relentlessly pursued Jonah. He went to work in his heart to get the message, of the, to, get the message to Nineveh. And I hope that today we would see God's overwhelming grace that is portrayed just in the, the grand mission of God. And so for the rest of our time, we're going to highlight through our text four different ways in which we see God's grace in his mission. I'm going to point those out as we go. But let's look back at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 3. This is where we see our first point. Look at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you, leading us to, to number one, God's grace to Jonah. You see, this is nothing short of God's grace to Jonah because God gave Jonah a second chance. Like he, certain, he didn't have to give Jonah a second chance. In fact, uh, second chances, they're not always guaranteed. And yes, God, he's always gracious, he's always forgiving, he's always waiting on us to receive us back. But second chances, they're not always there. I mean, just think, Adam and Eve, they were in the garden, they didn't get a second chance. No, they disobeyed and they were driven away from God's presence and yet God was totally good and just in doing this because disobedience, it always deserves consequences. And, and think about the New Testament in Acts uh, chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the apostles and they did not get a second chance. No, they immediately died and they immediately experienced the wrath of God. Again, we cannot assume we will always get a second chance. No, second chances, that's an act of grace. Like we can't assume we'll get a second chance to share the gospel with someone. We can't always expect we get a second chance to kick maybe a bad habit or some sort of destructive sin pattern. I mean, this is the, one of the scariest things to me is when people say, you know, I'll start following Jesus later in life, but right now I just kind of want to live the way I want to live. Kind of like I'm going to reject Jesus today, but maybe five, or t- five to ten years from now I'll, I'll come back to him. And we have to say no. That's like second chances don't always happen. Assuming on another chance may not end well. I mean, what happens? Like, what, just, what, what happens if you get in a car crash tonight? And the state of your eternity is based on whether you accept Christ or reject Christ right here today. I mean, Paul tells us in Romans two four, to not pres- presume on the riches of God's kindness. And yes, Jonah, he did get a second chance, but we can't miss. It was an absolute total, it was the total grace of God for him to do so. 
But as I say all of this, you know, we can't, like, I think there's no question, we, we still love second chances, don't we? Like, we love stories of redemption when they happen. You know, when athletes come back from a career-ending injury and they get a second chance, we love that. We love, we love stories of people turning their life around and getting a second chance at life with a, with a new start and a new beginning. We love adoption because it's giving a kid without a home, without parents, it's giving them a second chance and a new beginning. We love it when marriages are restored and relationships are brought to, back together. We love when investors and business owners take risks on people and give opportunities to people. Uh, like We just love these rags to riches stories. There's something about these stories that really just make our heart tick. And I think part of it is because we all know that unfortunately this isn't always the case. But when it happens, when we get a second chance, man, is it just so sweet. In a lot of ways, this is the message of the Bible. God is a God of second chances. I mean, just think about the people in the Bible that God gave a second chance to, like Noah and Moses, David, Peter, Paul, and Jonah, and and many others. I mean, this is why Jesus went to the cross when he went to the cross, Jesus was declaring that all of humanity is going to get a second chance. And what we've noticed about the writer of Jonah is that they're very creative in using several literary techniques and how they highlight just kind of the big ideas in the book. Like the book of Jonah, it is truly a literary work of art. Look at, I mean, let's, look at how, God hi, how the writer highlights this, this second chance for Jonah in the book. You know, in chapter 1, verse 1, It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and then down in chapter 3, verse 1, it says the exact same thing. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Chapter 1, verse 2, very next verse in chapter 1. It says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Chapter 3, verse 2, almost it's the exact same thing repeated. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Chapter 1, verse 3. We see Jonah's obedient, disobedience. It says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And then in chapter three, verse three, we see this redemption. It says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Seeing that Jonah, he got a second chance and he obeyed God. And so the author is clearly showing that God is giving Jonah a second chance. And, and this is just a side note. Like you could go through, maybe you could go and do this later, but we could go through uh, verse by verse of chapter one and chapter three of Jonah. And we would end up, I think we would end up seeing the stark difference of a life lived in rebellion to God versus a life lived in obedience to God. Chapter one shows rebellion and disobedience. And as we've seen, it didn't go very well for Jonah, but chapter three, it shows the life of obedience, which is clearly the better portion for Jonah, as we'll see. But in all this, I don't want us to miss that God is a God of second chances. Listen, if you're at a place, maybe where you've messed up, maybe you've been running from God, I want you to know that God is a God of second chances. Maybe your finances are out of order. Maybe you've been overspending and maybe you're in debt up to your eyeballs. Know that God is a God of second chances. Don't think that it's too late to turn your finances around. No, God, he seeks to restore all things. Or, or maybe, maybe, maybe you just haven't been the most present mom or dad or most engaging spouse or friend. Again, God is a God of second chances. If you've, maybe if you've been disengaged in some way, whatever it is, like there's always a way to re-engage. There's a chance to re-engage. Or maybe you've done something or said something that is just so that may seem so irreconcilable irreconcilable and maybe you think your relationship is done forever i want you to know that god delights in redeeming broken relationships 
God's word says that we are in the ministry of reconciliation. God is a, a God that reconciles relationships. And God loves to turn total messes into masterpieces. We also can't miss that the greatest thing God reconciles is he reconciles us back to himself. Like God takes wicked sinners and through Jesus he calls us saints. He makes us saints. God takes those who are far from God and in the gospel through a bloody cross he brings us near to God but only when we place our faith in Jesus. And I want to say this again. Don't wait to hand over your life to the Lord. Like don't assume there will be another chance. Don't roll the dice on God. No, give Jesus your life today. Again, New City, God is a God of second chances, but we can't miss that it is nothing short of God's grace and mercy for him to give it to us. So God in, so, so God in, chapter, and God in chapter three is showing us Jonah's second chance. Let's keep moving. Look at, look at again, starting in verse three. This is what it says. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Again, Jonah, he was walking in obedience, and then he finally goes to Nineveh. And, and we said two weeks ago, like this was, Nineveh was a great city, meaning it was great in size. You know, some have said that it was like close to 500 miles away, which is almost the whole length of the entire state of Florida. And I want to remind you that no, they did not have planes or trains or buses or cars. No, they just had good old fashioned donkeys and their two feet. But here's the thing. Like no, nobody really knows how big this city was, or, uh, but the author by saying it was a three days journey is emphasizing the size of the city and perhaps how far it was. And that it, was, it wasn't gonna be an easy task for Jonah, which who knows, maybe, maybe this was part of the reason Jonah didn't wanna go the first time, maybe thinking it was a long hike and he, just to go and be treated like garbage. I mean, can you imagine the thoughts Jonah was having on this three day journey to Nineveh? I mean, yes, he was walking in obedience, but I'm sure he still had some sort of fear because remember, he was very much an outsider to these people of Nineveh. Again, they were known for being cruel and mean, and he may have thought, like, what are these people going to do to me? I mean, he just knew he was going to stand out like a sore, th- sore thumb, knowing that uh, they knew he was a Hebrew prophet, and, they knew that, uh, and he knew that they were rude, crude, and impolite little rebels. But in this moment, he was trusting God, yet s- still possibly in his fear and uncertainty, like he still went anyways. We saw in chapter one, Jonah was fearful and he ran showing his cowardice. But here in chapter three, Jonah was likely still fearful, but yet walking in courage. We can't miss that walking in obedience to the Lord, it takes a lot of courage and it's not always going to be easy. But that's not the point I want to draw here. You know what's so fascinating to me about uh, verse four specifically? Look what it says. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And y'all, as a guy that preaches week after week, this is so fascinating to me. I mean, he probably preached one of the worst sermons in the entire Bible. Look at what it says. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's all he said. Which brings us to our second point. Number two, God's grace in the message 
Now, to be fair, this wasn't really a, a sermon. It was a warning, and I get that. But just think about this. In the original language, in the Hebrew, it was five words. There were no rhymes, no alliteration, no memorable points, no captivating illustrations, no invitation. There was no apologetic argument, uh, arguments, and he, and he didn't even explain what he meant. He didn't even ask them to respond. In fact, in the original language, it reads to intentionally emphasize that there is nothing special to this message. And coming from a book that is filled, like just filled with literary devices and techniques, just a masterful work of art, you would think the author would do the same thing with the message, but no. The literary technique the author used was to go out of his way to show that the message really wasn't that great. I mean, it was literally a five-second, five-word sermon. Some of you are like, well, take a note, preacher, okay? Verse 5 says, The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And just notice the three verbs in this verse as their response, how they responded. It says, they believed, they called, and they put on. You know, this is the perfect biblical response. It says they believed. There was an inward heart change. It says they called out to one another. They informed each other that, that people, and there were people around them. And then it says they put on, they, it says they put on sackcloth, showing signs of repentance, showing they wanted to go in a new direction. And so this, like, very unimpressive, underwhelming, five-word warming, that they pro- like, it probably didn't take much prep, it had an incredible response. And y'all, someone who puts a lot of work in week after week and has never seen this type of response, just seeing an entire city turn over to the Lord uh, just by, by a sermon, I can't help, like, what's the secret sauce here? How does this happen? And it begs the question, what in the world made them respond so well to this warning? And the only thing that makes any sense was that God was preparing their hearts to receive this message. It was God's word that God knew they needed to hear. Y'all, Jonah didn't do this. No, God did this. God did all of this. If anything, I would probably argue that Jonah, yes, he went. He did what God asked him to do. But I kind of think, as we'll see next week in chapter 4, he was still a little half-hearted maybe in his efforts. But regardless of his motive or his effort and an unimpressive message, the entire city still repented and turned to God. And there's a great truth here that I want us to remember. New City, people don't come to Christ through our compelling arguments or our well-spoken gospel presentations. No, people come to Christ through the power of God. People don't come to Christ through the greatness of the gospel messenger, but through the greatness of the gospel message. People come to Christ not through the power of man, but through the power of God. And this is exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2-5, to five, when he said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And listen, I'm... I'm not saying it's not helpful to have compelling arguments because we do have them. We have a lot of them. And we should know them and share them. Like God commands us as Christians to, to use our minds and to think well. And God does use these things. But what I am saying and what Paul is saying is that life change happens by the power of God and through the Spirit of God and not through compelling arguments and persuasive speech. 
In, in fact, I would even say one of my mo- most fruitful times in my own life as a Christian in evangelism and seeing people come to faith was when I was a brand new Christian. And you know what? Uh, during that time, I hardly knew the Bible. I had never heard the word of apologetics or theology, like all the big fancy Christianese words. I didn't know, I didn't know what any of it meant. But I knew I was in sin, and I knew I needed Jesus, and that Jesus died to take away my sin. And I would go around to my friends and people at school and just tell people about Jesus, not because I was great at it, but because I was amazed by it. I would say things like, hey, did you know that Christianity is not a list of rules and uh, is not about doing all these things, but the only thing that makes you a Christian is trusting in Jesus, trusting that he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and that's it? Like, it just baffled me that it was that simple. And I was amazed by it, and I wanted to tell others about it. And God used my fumbled and mumbled words and lack of eloquence and my, lack, and my just messed up gospel presentations to see other people come to Christ. Again, we cannot miss this. Gospel transformation is not in the power of the messenger. It's by the grace of God. It's in the power of the message. Like Jonah's message was very underwhelming, but yet God used it and the power of God was put on display. Let's keep moving. Look at me starting in verse 6 again. It says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not drink, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what he did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This brings us to our third point. Number three, God's grace to Nineveh. God God showed grace to Jonah to give him a second chance. God showed uh, grace in Jonah's unimpressive message to see an entire city turn to God. But we also can't miss the grace that God showed to Nineveh, a city just full of cruel people. And and I want to be sure you see this again because this is nothing short of a revival, of an awakening in the city of Nineveh. It's like a clear movement of God. There's an outworking of repentance throughout the entire city. And God revived the hearts of the people of Nineveh. And one of the things we see here is that the message made its way up to the king. And that the king was so moved that he showed a sign of humility by removing his robe. And he showed a sign of repentance by covering himself with sackcloth and sitting in ashes. And then, and then he turned and proclaimed to the people to do the exact same thing and to repent. And then the entire city turned away from their evil ways and they repented. God, in this moment, was capturing the hearts of people, and it was nothing short of God's grace to work in the hearts of these people who were as lost as lost could be. And as we look at this, I want us to take this third section, and I want us to see three markings that are essential for a movement of God, three markings of a revival. And the first is that revival begins with the power of the Word of God. Remember, Jonah brought the word of God to Nineveh. And like I said, it's not in the power of the messenger, but in the power of the word of God. But then the word of God, it was spreading and it reached all of Nineveh. Verse 6 says, the word of God reached the king of Nineveh. Again, like this is, this is God's power and grace. It took his power and grace to make this happen. And what we need to see here is that the evidence of a movement of God is when God's word is contagious. 
when it just spreads and when God's people can't stop talking about God's word. And we don't know if it was Jonah that shared it or if it was someone else that got the message to the king. It's probably safe to assume that some sort of messenger sent it to him. But look at what the king does when he gets the message. He issues a proclamation for all of Nineveh to repent and turn towards God. And don't forget this. Like, this is the king of Nineveh. And don't think that he didn't know what was going on in his city. I mean, he was probably right there with him in their cruelty and wickedness. I mean, he was the king. And yes, he knew what was going on in his city. And he knew they were rude, crude, and violent people. But it says, the word of God reached the king of Nineveh. And then what happened when it got there? It pierced his heart. The word of God, in its great power, it was spreading and it was changing lives in the people of Nineveh, which brings us to our second marking of a revival. Revivals are evidenced by God's people being changed by God. All the people of Nineveh were being changed. They they repented. They were moved to a time of fasting and sacrifice. And verse 8 says, They turned from their evil ways and and from the violence that is in his hands. Again, Nineveh, they were a violent people. They were evil, but this was their way of life. But they were willing to change. And you know, one of the greatest testimonies of God's grace in a person's life is the evidence of a changed life. Like when God changes our desires and our motives and our intentions and he gives us new desires and new motives and new intentions, that's evidence that God is in work, as at work. Like a new, we could say it this way, a new life on the outside is evidence of God's grace on the inside. God always changes us from the inside out and not from the outside in. I mean, religion, outside in, it says, do more, try harder, clean yourself up first before you come to God. And we have to say to that, no, that's not what the Bible teaches No, the gospel tells us to come to Jesus just as you are and God, God, through the power of the Spirit, he will change you while you're there with the Lord. And, And if you remember last week, we gave five indicators of a renewed life kind of at the end of our time. We said a renewed life is humbled under the hand of God, longs for the presence of God, is hungry for the word of God, is committed to God's will for their life, and is committed to seeing others experience God's grace and salvation. Again, these are expressions of a renewed life that a revival happens, it has happened in our heart. Which brings us to our third marking of a revival. Revivals in cities begin by God first reviving the hearts of God's people. Like before Nineveh could receive the message from Jonah, God needed to first do a work in Jonah's heart. Like before God did a work in my heart, he first did a work in Charlie's heart. Before God did a work in my wife's heart, God first did a work in her parents' hearts. Before God does a work in the lives of people around the world, he first works in the hearts of missionaries to get to the point of going to them and sharing the gospel with them. Again, before God works in those that we're close with, maybe those that we live with or or, or work with or uh, just kind of interact with, God first has to do a work in our heart to get us to the point of loving them and sharing the gospel to them. So let me just ask the simple question. Do we want to see a revival in our city? Do do we want to see a spiritual awakening in our workplaces, in our schools, on our campuses? Do we want to see a movement of God in our families? Do we want to see a great work of God happen in our marriages and happen in our friends' lives and happen in our neighbors' lives? 
Like if, if we want this, then we must pray for a movement of God to happen first in our own hearts. Like we must pray for our own soul to be renewed day by day. We must pray, just as we saw last week, that we would be stripped of idols day after day. We must pray that we would daily see our need for Christ and long to be in the presence of God and the word of God and that we'd be able to say, God, not my will, but your will. If we want to see a movement of God in our city, maybe like we've never seen before in the Tampa Bay area, and if we want to see dozens of unreached people groups come off the map through our efforts, and we want to see 1% of the campus, just 1%, reach through our efforts, and on and on we could go. New City, we need to first pray for a movement of God in the hearts of God's people, and it starts with you, and it starts with me. Well, this is how God works. Before God works through us, doing a work with us, outside of us, he first does a work inside of us. And y'all, we're all a work in progress. And we all will be until the day we die. But we know, what we know to be true is that yes, God wants to use us for his mighty purposes. But before he does that, he first wants to captivate our hearts with his love. He wants our, our whole life. He wants it wholly yielded to the Lord. And so as we get to like the last six or seven minutes of our time here today, like I want us to look back at verse eight, and, eight to 10 and just notice something here. Look what it says. This is what it says. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Did you see the uncertainty of the king's words in the proclamation in verse 9? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I mean, who knows? God may turn and relent. Y'all, they had no sense of certainty, but yet they still repented. They changed their direction. They changed their way of life because of a future hope. And then we see God's compassion, God's grace, his mercy is just put on display. Again, in verse 10, it says, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So God showed himself as compassionate and forgiving God. God showed mercy to the people of Nineveh. God showed them grace. Which brings us to our fourth point, fourth point today, seeing so much more of how just great God's grace at the cross is. God's grace on the cross, number four. Again, New City Nineveh repented for an uncertain hope of what God may do. And so again, how much more can we turn towards God with a certainty in what Christ has already done? I mean, the author of Hebrews tells us because of what Christ has done on the cross, because Christ overcame the grave, because Christ defeated sin, and because of, through Christ we have access to God. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, let, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Y'all, we can come to Christ in great confidence today, expecting God just to revive us and restore us again and again and again. Because we have assurance in what Christ has already done by going to the cross and defeating sin and death. Again, I don't know where you are today. I don't know what's brought you here. But if you're wondering, does, does Jesus love me? Does God even care for me? Is God even listening to me? 
Can, can God really, truly restore me? Listen, we can say emphatically yes, because God has displayed his love for you on the cross. That God showed his care for us by dying on the cross in our place. Jesus died so that he could daily restore us and revive our hearts. He died so that we could have a relationship with him. Listen, if, if you have a sense of uncertainty of your relationship before God, let me tell you this. Like we, don't, we don't have to worry about what God may do because we have certainty in knowing what Christ has already done. When we are under the protection of Christ, when we confess Christ as Lord, we gain a new standing before God. Like in Christ, we have a confidence that we are protected under the hand of God. In Christ, through the power of the gospel, we have confidence that we are adopted as sons and daughters. In Christ, covered by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence that the wrath of God that we deserved, it was poured out in Christ instead of us. Jesus went in our place. We also know that if Christ rose from the dead, the Spirit of God is alive. If we are in Christ, at Christ, He has the power to change us and to shape us in His image that God can use you and me for great kingdom work. New City, may we not sell God short of what He has accomplished at the cross. Like we don't have to live in uncertainty with God. No, Jesus died to give us confidence and hope. And listen, if you're here today, and and if you've never given your life to Jesus, maybe you thought being with Jesus was all about a list of rules and attending church and rituals and doing this and doing that. I want to say that no. Being with Jesus is all about what God did at the cross. And so I want to beg you today, don't wait Don't delay. Don't wait for another opportunity. No, give Jesus your life today. Surrender it to him today. Like the God of the universe, the God of the universe is pursuing you. If you're here today, God is pursuing you. And he's waiting on you to come to him so he can say, I love you. He's waiting on just to say, you're mine. Well done. So I just want to end with this. You know, I hope that you've seen just a small glimpse of how God's grace is displayed in his mission. Seeing that in God's grace we get second chances, seeing just the power uh, of God's grace is displayed in the message and not the messenger. God's grace is displayed in the hearts, of reviving the hearts of people like we saw with Nineveh, just seeing the, the ultimate display, the display of grace at the cross. But as I say all of this, now we can't miss, and in all this, God simply, he just wants our hearts, every bit of it. God, he's relentless in his pursuit of our entire life. God, he wants to awaken our souls to him. Because in doing so, he wants to awaken and bring revival to the people and to the cities around us. Again, God brought revival in Jonah's heart so that he could then bring about revival to the heart's of the people of Nineveh. And you know, I have no doubt that God wants to bring about a revival in each of our own hearts, that he wants to awaken our souls so that he can bring revival to those around us. 
Like I wholeheartedly believe that God wants to fully awaken us and awaken our souls fully so he can awaken the souls of our families and friends and our classmates and our neighbors. Like I believe God wants to do, a, do more work in each of our hearts and each of our lives so that he can bring a greater awakening to the hearts of the millions of people in the Tampa Bay area so that the gospel will get to the ends of the earth for the billions that have never heard the name of Jesus. You know, we often think of revival as this like event that just happens where, uh, where the lost come to Christ in droves. And yes, in some ways that, that's true. We need and we should pray for salvation. But listen, if we're praying for salvation in others without being willing to hand over every single area of our life, like we're totally missing it because these go hand in hand. Jesus didn't die for part of our life. No, he died to be the ruler of every single nook and cranny of our life. And so just ask, what is keeping us from being zealous for God's mission and just to intentionally invest in just a few people? I mean, is it the idolatry of our schedule? Is it the messiness of people? What is it? And please hear me. I'm not saying these things to heap on guilt. I'm saying, these th- I'm saying this because this stuff is real and true. And I myself, I have to wrestle with the same thing. Again, just ask, what has to happen in our hearts to get us to a place where maybe we could just go on a short-term mission trip? Like what has to happen in our hearts to get to the point of extravagant generosity so that we can pour more, more fuel on the fire to reach more lost people around us here? New City, this is the book of Jonah. God first does a work in us so that God will do a work through us. And so let's just pray for God to revive each of us day after day so that God, so that we would daily be able to say, God, take my life, take my entire life, it's in your hands. And when that happens, y'all, God begins to move in powerful ways in us and through us. Let's pray. God, you're, you're so good and kind to us that you're relentless in your pursuit of us. God, you're so gracious to to care for our hearts and souls that you don't give up on us, that you give us second chances. God, if there's anyone in here today that has never given their life to the Lord, God, I hope and pray that they would know that you are relentless in your pursuit of their heart, that you are calling on them to say, God, take my life, take all of it. I want to give my life to Jesus. God, we're praying just for a work of the Spirit, but God, would you do a work in us so that we could, you would then do a work through us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.